Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 25. I have the passage that is our focus on your insert. I will refer to several passages today. We are reading another account of Paul defending himself before authorities. We are in the final chapters of the book of Acts, and these are the final chapters of Paul's life and ministry. Uh, We left off with him standing before the governor, Felix, who was a particularly brutal and ruthless and corrupt governor of Judea, uh, the Roman representative. And of course, Paul was a Roman citizen, so he uh, deserved that trial. So he he wasn't left with just the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem. He would have been killed. But he appealed to his Roman citizenship. He was sent to Caesarea. Felix heard his case, heard the Jewish case, did not think the Jews had enough to convict, but he was nervous about releasing Paul. He even had personal meetings with him over the course of some time. And after two years, Felix was removed and Festus was put in his place, and yet Paul was still in prison. And so now Festus takes the role of governor, and we pick up in the text. Now what I would like us to be thinking of as I read this passage and considering this morning, all these episodes where unbelievers or people who are religious but yet unbelievers, in Christ anyways, are attacking Christians. Uh, False accusations. Uh, When we look at the life of Paul, this happens over and over again. It's happened multiple times in the last few chapters. But this is something that is not new. It's happened throughout the history of God's people. And I want us to, this morning, consider that a little bit in connection with this particular story, and then, by God's help, draw some helps or some conclusions about ways we could approach when attacks come or when false accusations are made against the church or against Christians. Hear now God's holy word. I will read Acts 25, 1 through 12. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea, and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar." Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Please bow with me as I 
lead us in prayer. Father, we have observed your sovereign hand of providence expanding the church in this book of Acts. We have seen, despite opposition from those who hate your people, your supernatural watch care over your servants. And we have the record of your church growing in this book, even in the face of opposition. Time and time again, your people are attacked and accused. Please teach us how to deal with attacks and false accusations for our peace and for our joy, but most of all, for your glory. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Before Jesus himself was attacked and falsely accused, multiple of God's people experienced the same thing. Attacks on the people of God from the enemies of God are nothing new. They are observable virtually every day in Scripture, in church history, and in our present times. Even this week, I was reminded of this reality when a friend of mine, Dr. Jason Allen, who's the president of Midwestern Seminary, preached here just a couple months ago. You got to know him just a little bit. Uh, he had a 10-minute interchange with the, Missouri, the governor of Missouri a month ago. It was really just a, a simple a friend had let him be introduced to the governor. He told him what he was doing with the seminary as part of their state. It was very simple, very superficial. Didn't get into any issues. Just mentioned that. But a report came out from a tabloid site uh, that's on all the social media feeds and has lots of followers. The tabloid report came out against Dr. Allen saying that he was lobbying for all sorts of things he would never lobby for, for like a 90-minute meeting with, with the governor. It was pretty detailed in what this tabloid site seemed to know. It accused him of several things, several of which would have been unethical had they been true. Now, I saw the reports coming across my Twitter feed, and I thought, there's no way. I know Dr. Allen well enough, and I just could not imagine any of this was right. So I reached out to him and and, uh, emailed him and said, I just want you to know I'm behind you. I know there's no way this is true. And he responds immediately, and he gets lots of of people answering him, or emailing him. So I know he was busily trying to let his friends know that this thing was fabricated. And that's what he said. It was completely fabricated. None of it is true. Not a bit of it's true. So I wondered to myself, someone's a president of an institution like that in a rather big organization, part of a huge convention. Um, these accusations were significant enough. You'll, all you have to do is look it up on Twitter and you'll see some of the things that were said. And how would he address this? I was curious, especially as I'm studying for how Paul um, addressed attacks and accusations in the church history class I'm teaching um, for Sunday school that's nonstop of that going on in the Middle Ages where Christians are falsely accused and they have to give defense. Well, Dr. Allen decided with some counsel that he was going to go right after it. And he almost immediately, within like an hour of the report coming out, called for them to give all their evidence for what they knew about it. And he, he did a string of these, these tweets and these uh, posts, and it was right in the face of this tabloid group. The next day, the tabloid group, and I've never seen them do this, they, re, they put a huge uh, rescinding of the story. Uh, they took it all back saying that they relied on one bad source, they admitted the source was bad, and they were apologizing. Of course, a lot of damage was already done. But I thought that was a bold move on Dr. Allen's part. I mean, he went after it because he knew what the truth was, and in that instance, he thought it was wisest to attack it that way. Brought up a lot of questions in my own mind about how do we as Christians deal with attacks that come our way and false accusations that are made. It could be as applicable as you as an individual having a few people who are really confronting you about your Christian faith. Um, When I talk about attacks and false accusations, I don't mean just about anything. 
We're talking about defense of the Christian faith, the defense of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not our political views or some other thing we have that we think is important that's not the gospel of Christ. It's who we are as the people of God in Christ. When that comes under attack or we're falsely accused in some way, how do we respond? And watching Paul in these episodes certainly gives us some insight. But I think there are other examples in Scripture that we might look to as well. I note a couple on your notes. I think it's important to look at Joseph, for instance. How did he deal with attacks and false accusations? At least briefly. Very different from Paul. And then there's, of course, most importantly, the Lord Jesus. There are others we could look to for sure. Daniel, Daniel's friends, others. But I want us to at least do a a bit of a survey of a few and then come back at the end, look at the story we just read, see what Paul does here, and then draw some applications, as it were, for our own lives that we might consider when attacked or falsely accused. The Apostle Paul himself demonstrates how Christians might deal with these things when they come upon us. Let's consider a couple examples, as I mentioned first, before we come to Paul. I picked Joseph because I know most people know the story of him, so I'll give a bit of a survey. Think about Joseph and his responses to the injustices that he endured in his life. As a young man, he was betrayed by his own brothers, sold into Egyptian slavery. He could have gotten immediately bitter at that point. Yet his first stop by God's providence was at the home of a rich nobleman named Potiphar. And things went well for him there. He was given care over all that Potiphar had because he was so effective in his administration, in his organization, in his leadership. Yet while serving him very faithfully, Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him. When Joseph refused, she got angry and falsely accused him. In Genesis 39, she had been trying. She had been trying to seduce him, and, she, and this is what the passage relays. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my charge. And notice what he says in his response. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? I cite this because it becomes an important foundational point for all believers as we consider what might come against us. He says, how could I do this great thing, this great wickedness and sin against God? Then one day, she caught him, it says in verse 12 of chapter 39 in Genesis. She caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. But he left his garment in her, in her hand and fled and got out of the house. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he, Potiphar, her husband, has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And as soon as he heard that I lifted my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Then she laid up his garment by her until her master came home. And she told him the same exact story, saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came into me to laugh at me. But as soon as I lifted up my voice and cried, he left his garment beside me and fled out of the house. All false accusations, totally made up, completely the opposite of what happened. As soon as his master heard the words that his wife spoke, this is the way your servant treated me, his anger was kindled. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison the place where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in the prison. Now just briefly think about how Joseph answered. He didn't. It doesn't appear like he was given any chance. Now here's part of the reason. 
He's a slave in the household. He has no rights. And Potiphar could have easily had him executed on the spot, fully within his Egyptian rights. And Joseph would never have been able to give any defense. But instead, Potiphar, it seems, has some mercy. He puts him in prison instead. Maybe Joseph didn't speak because he realized that mercy that was shown. He should have been killed, but he wasn't. It's not like Potiphar would be able to stand against his own wife in front of everybody with the word of a Hebrew slave. So he analyzes the situation and he handles it that way. Or it seems like he doesn't give or doesn't have a chance to give much of a defense. He endured some further injustices in his life when he was in prison. Should have got out of prison, but didn't. Someone didn't keep their word again. Then at the end of his amazing life that God brought to a a climax with his brothers coming to beg of Egypt for food, not recognizing it's their brother, finally realizes it is, and they fall at his feet knowing that they deserve his wrath. But what Joseph says gives us a picture of his demeanor that helped him when the attacks came and the accusations came. In Genesis 50, his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. The story of Joseph is one of preservation of the seed for Messiah to come, among other things. Yet, attacks and false accusations are part of this child of God's life. Now, let's consider another example before coming to Paul. The example of our Lord Jesus. The most vivid in all of our minds. I hardly have to cite too many instances. I just want to cite a few so we get a flavor for how Jesus deals with attacks and false accusations. This would be the example Paul, no doubt, has in his mind as he deals with the same kinds of trials. In Luke 20, the first few verses. As Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who it is that gave you this authority. Now, how would Jesus answer? This is an attack, clearly. They're they're looking to trip him up. An attack may have truth in it, unlike false accusations, but it's meant to harm. It has a purpose. It's malicious. Jesus answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Jesus knew this would polarize the crowd pretty quickly. He wasn't going to answer this attack question, and so he turns it with a question of his own. And they discussed it with one another. You can hear him whispering together. If we say from heaven, he will say, why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death because they think John's a prophet. So they turn around and they say, so they answered that they did not know where he came from. We don't know. And Jesus said, neither will I tell you what authority I do these things by then. That's one way Jesus would sometimes respond to attacks. He gives them an answer, but it's not the one that they're looking for after he asks some questions of his own. Here's another example in Matthew 15. Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. And he answered them. He likes to ask questions in response. And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your mother and your father. And whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. 
So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites. So he calls out an obvious place where they're guilty of the same thing he's saying Jesus is guilty of, only they really are guilty, and then he calls them a name. He says, you're hypocrites. That's another way Jesus answers, different than the first way. There's yet another way Jesus answers, and you're probably familiar with this during his trial. In Matthew 26, the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death. It's up front, they're looking for false accusations. But they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? And Jesus remained silent. In that moment, he didn't answer. But then in the next moment, as the story continues, the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said so, but I tell you from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? So here Jesus answers. He's not making an appeal to be released or showing them how they are dishonest. Uh, with the charges that are false in this time, he's just stating the truth in this occasion. He's using the interchange to proclaim the truth with very carefully chosen words. Peter, who was very close to Christ and an eyewitness to his trial and death, wrote this in his epistle. He, Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So we thought a little bit about Joseph, a little bit about Jesus, how they react to attacks and false accusations, because we want to think a bit of how we might do what the Bible describes when it happens to us. Now, think about Paul leading to the passage that we just read. Hopefully, it's not been too long. You remember the different episodes now. He goes back to Jerusalem after some time goes into the temple, immediately is attacked by a crowd. And he has to defend himself there. And he cries out, uh, talking about uh, the resurrection. And then Claudius Lysias protects him. And then tries to settle things down and have a more uh, calm, more civil hearing. And there he endures the Sanhedrin's attacks again. And he gives another sound doctrinal message of the resurrection. He splits the Sadducees and the, and the Pharisees. Very skillfully, he works himself out of that situation because he recognizes he's not going to be heard there. But he's proclaiming the gospel, teaching on the resurrection about Christ, saying that I believe in the same faith you believe in. I just believe in its fulfillment in Christ. Claudius sees what's happening, but still frustrated that the crowd's mad. So he decides, Paul's not telling me everything there is to tell me, so I'm going to have him flogged until he does. And just as he's ready to be flogged, just as it's about to happen, Paul says, can you do this to a Roman citizen? And the centurion's about ready to whip him, said, whoa, you're a citizen? And now everything changes. So there's skill in his response. Notice he utilizes what he knows legally. Um, He's not trying to preserve his life for the sake of preserving it. He just wants more opportunity to proclaim the gospel. And so he appeals to his citizenship. And so Claudius recognizes this. He's not going to get a hearing in Jerusalem. He already knows they're plotting to kill him. So he sends him to Caesarea, where the governor of all that region, the Roman governor, could hear his case. And he sends him to Felix. 
And last week, we spent the whole time overviewing that interchange between Felix and Paul. Paul and the Jewish leadership, much like the other interchanges. He gives a sound explanation of the gospel, of who Christ is, the fulfillment of all that the the Old Testament looked forward to. He answered the charges that were made against him. No one could come up with anything that stuck, and even Felix knew it. But Felix didn't want to give him without at least a bribe, so he holds him. For two years, Felix holds him. And he actually has private meetings with him, and he's terrified by what Paul says, because Paul's letting him know, you know, there's the righteousness of God you've got to deal with, and you have to understand that self-control is part of what God calls his people to, and of course, that's something Felix wasn't doing. And then finally, God's judgment's coming, and Felix was like, get away from me, Paul. But yet he's holding him in house arrest for two years. Well, Felix is relieved of his duties because of his brutality and his ineffectiveness. And Rome puts Festus in charge. Festus is supposed to be a peacemaker. He's supposed to try to bring things calm again because they were certainly building to a height that finally came to an apex in 70 AD. But this time, in the 60s sometime, he's still trying to gain some peace with the Jews. And so we come to the passage before us, and let's see how Paul deals in this case before we draw some conclusions. Verse 1. Three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. He just starts as governor, and his first thing is, I'm going to Jerusalem to talk to these Jewish leaders. Why are they always so fired up? Why is there always so so many problems coming from Jerusalem? What do they want to talk about? Verse 2, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul, that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him. Listen, Festus, we don't want to go over this with you again, the Jews say. We'll take care of it. Just simply send Paul to Jerusalem and we'll take care of the rest. Try to reverse what had happened with Felix. Claudius sends him down. Now they want, send him back. We'll take care of him. And hoping that Festus, wanting peace, will go along with this. But Festus is a man of enough principle, verse 2, Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. He didn't want his first act as governor to be giving up a prisoner like this that had been kept for two years, and everyone knew about it at this point. So, verse 5, he said, Let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let him bring charges against him. Let's do this thing again, he's basically saying, one more time. But now you've had two years to come up with more charges. So here they come, verse 7. When they had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Even after two years, they couldn't come up with something that would stick. Nothing. And of course, you know that Luke is giving just a summary here. This went on for longer than we read here. In fact, verse 8, you can see it's summary form. Paul argued in his defense. You know about Paul's arguments. They're not a sentence long. Paul argued in his defense, and this is the summary of the argument. Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. Here's another defense of Paul, but what's different about this one? Caesar. He mentions Caesar. The prior defense he gave to Felix, he just said, I didn't commit any of these crimes, and I can show you how I didn't. This is what I was doing. But now, knowing this thing is not going to be answered with any Jewish help, he's going to make his appeal to Caesar, and that's going to immediately make Festus, who wants Caesar, his boss, to appreciate what he's doing as governor and to honor him as Caesar. It's brilliant on the part of Paul to bring Caesar's name up. Verse 9. Festus, though, is hoping to avoid this, but Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, 
do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Paul knew what that meant. Paul was no Jimmy Hoffa. He wasn't getting in that car. Festus was clearly trying to be done with the matter of Paul and knew that sending him to Jerusalem would be the end of Paul. No more issues with him. How does Paul respond? Verse 10, Paul said, in response to this idea of going to Jerusalem, I'm standing before Caesar's tribunal. This is the high court. Why would I go back down to that court? Where I ought to be tried, here in Caesar's tribunal, verse, one, verse 10. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. Festus had to be in a bit of a in a bit of a panic, and he goes to some of his counsel. What do we do? Is there anything in our bylaws that can get this guy? What can we do about this guy? And they're all saying, he can't do anything. He just appealed to Caesar. And if you give him back to the Jews after he appealed to Caesar, you're saying the Jews and Judaism and the temple in Jerusalem is better than Rome, better than Caesar. Can't do that. Festus, when he had conferred, verse 12, with his counsel, answered, to Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. And up the chain goes Paul in these last chapters of his life, and in every case, opportunity to proclaim the gospel. Now, let's step back for just a moment, just to close this out, and draw some principles that we have observed from Joseph, Jesus, and Paul. And you can think of some others in Scripture, I'll even allude to them. But let's rattle through some of the things that we could have in our minds as we face attacks or false accusations. We, individually maybe, but as a church, as Christians, how should we think through and act? First and foremost, we see it in all of the people who were attacked or falsely accused. They knew their God and they trusted in him and his sovereignty over the power of man. This just goes without saying in the life of Joseph, in the life of Christ, obviously, and in the life of Paul. That God is the real king, not the Sanhedrin, not the Caesar, not the local governor. Yes, they have power. They have power over my physical life. But God's the sovereign one. And so that underlying reality gives them the courage they need when called upon to show it. Secondly, and closely related to knowing their God, is they knew that they were known by their God through Christ. So they had a, a, a certain amount of safeness, a contentment, a security, because they knew that they had ultimate eternal protection from Christ. That no matter what happened on this earth they would be with God through Christ. No matter what earthly powers did to them, God will give Christians the final eternal vindication. This was true for all of these people um, who dealt with attacks and false accusations as Christians. We remember the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego when the king said, you need to bow to the statue. You need to bow to me is what he's saying. And they're like, we're not bowing to you. That's against what our God has told us to do. And so we're not going to do it. Well, I'm going to throw you in the furnace then. I will kill you. And so what do they say? O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, even then, even if you do kill us, and it's God's will that you do, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. It's just 
comes from people who know their God and they know that their God knows them and we know that he knows us through Christ. And so we have that security always. These are the two beginning points of the whole of your life, let alone dealing with attacks and accusations. Now, thirdly, flowing from these others, these people also knew the standards or the commandments or the precepts of God. Um, They knew their God, who's the sovereign one who knew them and saved them, also had his calling for us. He had commands for us, things we can't compromise no matter what happens. Joseph was not going to compromise his God's standards with Potiphar's wife in sin against God. He knew this and he was determined beforehand about it. Jesus was not going to stop preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Paul was not going to stop preaching the gospel. So knowing this, they were even more firm in the face of those attacks, and they also knew where they needed to be clear in what they should be defending exactly. They knew the standard that God called them to, and they maintained integrity with it. Fourth, sometimes you won't be able to answer, or you shouldn't answer. We see this on occasion. There are times when Christians will not be given the opportunity to answer. We are in God's hands at all times, and in those times it may be for an ultimate end. The attackers or the accusers won't hear a response. Sometimes God says, don't answer a fool according to their folly. We have to endure injustice silently on occasion, knowing that God will be the final judge. Pastor Wang Yi that I read the quote from last week wasn't allowed a formal legal defense at any moment. He wrote a response after, but he wasn't able to answer. He just had to take what was given to him. Many persecuted Christians endure suffering without an appeal. We've seen this the world over in history and in the present. Sometimes this is the will of God for Christians that we won't be able to answer. Fifth, when you do have the opportunity to answer, be ready to give a defense. Defend yourself to the extent to extend your opportunity to proclaim Christ. Remember, that's why these defenses would come at any level. It was not yet Christ's time, so he would say something or he would give the leaders the slip during the Gospels. Paul, not to preserve his own life, but to be able to live longer to preach the message of the Gospel. This is what drives us. This is why we should be ready to defend ourselves if we have the opportunity. John Calvin said in this regard, Christ's servants must be all the more courageous to carry on through good and evil reports against them. They should not think it anything remarkable that evil is spoken of them when they have done good. At the same time, they must easily defend themselves before men when the opportunity arises. Sixth, it's okay for Christians to use legal means to defend themselves. Paul is an expert on Roman and Jewish law, and he uses this knowledge to defend himself so he could keep on preaching, so he could keep on ministering. Festus says, hey, do you want to be tried in Jerusalem? Paul says, no, I don't. I'll stay here under Caesar. He knew his rights, and he appealed to them so that he could continue preaching. You know, Romans 13 establishes the civil government for a reason, for the welfare of society. For as corrupted as it can be, it's still a God-ordained institution. And part of that God-ordained civility in most places, is a legal system. And where there is such a system, Christians are free to use it against attacks and false accusations. Seventh, whatever the case when we are responding or answering these things, we are not 
to return reviling with reviling. The foundational belief we have about God, his sovereignty, his ultimate protection, these guard us from hatred against people in times of attack and false accusations. Joseph did not appear to grow bitter. He even was able to see God's sovereign hand in the injustice that he endured. You intended for evil what God intended for good. Jesus felt compassion on his attackers. He even prayed to God for his mercy on those people who were crucifying him. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Eighth, and finally, when we find ourselves attacked or falsely accused, this is an opportunity for the church to speak first to their God, to use it as an opportunity to appeal to God, to go to God who knows the truth, the truth of all things. We use the situation for prayer. It's a situation that causes renewed dependence on God. That's what prayer is. Less words to our enemies and more words to our God. That's what some have said. Jesus prayed during his attacks. Daniel in the lion's den prayed to his God. Pray to our God, the God, when we're under such attacks and accusations. David understood attacks and false accusations. He was no perfect man by any means, not even close. Nobody is. But he grew closer and closer to God as he saw the hand of God's grace upon his life and the calling that God had placed upon him. In Psalm 109, David pens these words, and these are good words to finish with. Be not silent, O God of my praise, for wicked and deceitful mouths are opened against me, speaking against me with lying tongues. They encircle me with words of hate and attack me without cause. In return for my love, they accuse me, but I give myself to prayer. Let's bow together as I lead us in a closing prayer. Lord, may we be so secure in knowing of your love for us that no matter what circumstance we are in, we can give you praise. May we find our strength in you during times of attack and false accusations. May your name be glorified when such things happen. And may we be drawn ever closer to you. Lord, guard us from fear, from doubt, even bitterness. Instead, cultivate trust and courage and endurance so that we may praise your name in all circumstances. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn together to 348. We will stand and sing the first four verses of Jesus, With thy church abide, as the elders and the ushers come to prepare the table. Let's stand and sing.